This is episode 101 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Casey Lewis. Casey's an SLP in the northern DFW area who currently works in the NICU and also continues to work in the ICU, acute care, and inpatient rehab settings, and also has her own mobile fees company called TechScope. She received her BS in Communication Sciences and Disorders and her BA in Government from the University of Texas at Austin. She also completed her Master's in Speech Pathology from the University of North Texas. Casey is a certified neonatal therapist, currently one of 339 in the world, has been designated as a neonatal developmental care specialist through the National Association of Neonatal Nurses, is certified in neonatal touch and massage, and is trained in LSVT, vital stim, and AMP care. Casey is also an ACE Award recipient. She's extremely passionate about ther- therapeutic pain management in the NICU population, as well as ensuring that all patients, young and old, are given the opportunity to eat safely and pleasurably. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hi, Casey. Hi, Teresa. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this topic. Yes, it's super important to me. <laughs> it, yes, and me too as a mom. Not, I don't work with these babies as an SLP, but as a mom, I'm super passionate about it too. But thank you. I still keep getting so many emails and comments from people like, why don't you ever talk about babies? And I'm like, I'm trying people. So thank you. Yes. You're welcome. So, Here we are. All right. So tell the people a little bit about who you are. So my name is Casey Lewis. Um, I'm from the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and I currently work in the NICU. I try to say NICU, not NICU, because it is an ICU. Um, And I also float to acute care and inpatient rehab. Um, I pretty much worked everywhere, and I am young, and I find a lot of pride in that, that I have worked a lot of places, and I'm fulfilling my dream of working in the NICU at age 30. Awesome. Awesome. (laughs) Um, And I kind of wanted to talk about my journey and how I got here because it's so hard to get in. So how I got in is I pretty much took all the continuing education courses I could. And I did every Catherine Shaker course. And during my rotation in grad school, I was fortunate enough to have a rotation at an outpatient clinic within the Baylor hospital system. And that really helped me throughout the interview process to be able to see what happens to a lot of these grads from the NICU, how the experiences there do affect them for the rest of their lives. And that really played a role in my interview process, especially since I was interviewing with nursing, director of labor and delivery, and physical therapist. There was not one speech pathologist I interviewed with. And you'll find that a lot in community hospitals because I am in a smaller hospital, which I think is great because I get to solidify and form a program within a smaller environment. So that's how I got here. Awesome. 
I, I love that the first thing you said was that I took a ton of CEU courses because I think those are like the kind of comments and questions that I get the most that frustrate me so much. Like, this is a setting I want to work in. What do I need to do to get there? And I'm like, well, what have you taken? They're like, well, nothing, because I don't want to waste my time or money to get in there. And it's like, well, you have to do that. I still I do see you, you know, at least once a week, something online. Um, and I was fortunate enough that my hospital system knew that I couldn't just be thrown in to that environment. You can't yeah. expect adult an adult therapist to just know what to do. And it's not fair to the babies and it's not fair to the parents. Um, so I did have about three to four weeks of training with other speech pathologists in awesome. our sister hospitals. And I knew that still wasn't enough. So I joined the National Association of Neonatal Therapists, NANT. I went to their national conference in Charlotte, North Carolina. And then there they were advertising for their mentorship program. Um, it's called Ignite. And literally that rocked my world, changed my life. And now I am a NICU superstar. I just said NICU, but <laughs> I feel really <laughs> proud of where I am. Also, I did want to talk about a personal experience I've had with this environment that's really put a fire under my butt to want to be better. And I think that's important. I don't wish bad things on people, but I think it's important for us to have those experiences because they make us better clinicians. Yep. Um, so in March, 2018, my sister delivered a full-term stillborn. So he was intrauterine death. And that was such a nightmare for me and my family and for my sister, especially and her, her husband, especially since they struggled with fertility. And then in March, 2019, my sister delivered the twin preemies. Um, so having that year to, you know, um, mourn, but use my frustrations for something better prepared me to help be an advocate for my sister's babies who were born at 32 and six weeks gestation. So that was an interesting experience, especially since I was at another hospital, but it really gave me the ability to advocate for my family because that's my blood. I think that's important that now I have a different perspective on these families. Like this is actual a nightmare, an yes. actual nightmare for them to be there. Yeah. Um, and so I try to not be so objective with what I'm talking about, but more have an emotional relationship with them and more connections. There's so much I could talk about, but I'll start just talking about feeding. I want people to understand that first, well, I'm a certified neonatal therapist, but first I'm a neonatal therapist. Second, I'm a speech pathologist. The role of a neonatal therapist in the NICU is to bridge the developmental gap from the expected environment of the womb to the unexpected environment of the NICU. Essentially, these babies are growing in an artificial environment. And I'm not sure if you or anyone has looked at the differences in these babies' brains compared to a full-term infant. Basically, we are helping form the cortical folding in their brain with every interaction we have. So when I'll go train nurses or talk to staff, I'll show them pictures of the brain and say, we are forming those sulci and gyri. So every experience matters. The brain is an experience-dependent organ. So, And actually, feeding is the first developmental milestone, but it's so stressful. 
um, in the NICU because there is a push to get these babies home. Obviously, everyone wants them home. Mom wants them home. Dad wants them home. We want them home. But sometimes they're just not ready. And so that's kind of where it's difficult because with our healthcare system, there is a push to get everybody home out of out the doors, right? But with that comes the difficulties of force feeding and feeding on certain respiratory supports that aren't safe. So first, what, you know, no matter what, what gestation the baby is when they come in, like we have a lot of 26, 27 weekers right now in our NICU. So first, my job with those um, parents and those babies is to encourage a relationship, let those moms and dads form a relationship with their baby because they're so scared. Um, and that means, you know, teaching them how to touch their baby, teaching them how to do a diaper change and teaching them what they can do as a parent. So something I talk about a lot is I show parents how to give a hand hug. It's where you cup the baby's head and facilitate flexion, meaning their legs kind of get tucked and their arms are in a tuck position. And I say, this is what you can do for your baby. When you feel like you can't parent, you can just give them a hand hug and say you're there and without getting to hold. Um, I encourage skin to skin as early and as often as possible. I'm a proponent for 24-7 skin to skin because as a lot of us know, um, these parents do experience PTSD outside of the, the NICU environment. You know, some research articles saying, you know, 90% of parents experience PTSD from their situation. Um, so the parents get to bond with their baby and skin to skin helps facilitate warmth. They get to have a sensory experience on their mom's chest or their dad's chest. Um, and they get to hear their mom's heartbeat or their dad's heartbeat and their scent. Um, so that's the first thing. And then I'll get to talking about respiratory support in a little bit, but after that, we encourage nuzzling or kind of baby exploring mom's breast or licking on mom's breast. So it's um, where mom has already pumped, so she's not getting any milk, and she's just the baby is just sucking on mom's breast like a pacifier. And then after that, we encourage breastfeeding as much as mom can do it. Um, I did want to talk about breast milk. Um, so we do encourage mom to pump at the bedside, and how breast milk works is the best breast milk is from mom's breast, baby on mom's breast. Second is freshly pumped breast milk. So it's where mom pumps it, it's at the bedside, baby consumes it. Um, third is refrigerated breast milk. So it's been in the refrigerator. Fourth is frozen breast milk. And fifth is um, donor. So donor is always the last preferred method of getting breast milk. So our physicians go over that with us all the time. And you want to go grab whatever's in the refrigerator. You want to grab what was pumped most recent, recently because that has the most fresh nutrients for the baby. Something that I'm really proud of is that I have advocated to be a part of daily rounds with our physicians. We definitely didn't have that before I started. It wasn't an easy process at all in the beginning, but what was happening is I was making recommendations and talking to the mom and dad, and then the phys providers or the physician, the NMP or the nurse, that's a nurse was saying something different than me. So it was causing some conflict and um, frustration with the parents, and that's obviously not ideal. 
So being a part of daily rounds, granted we are a smaller hospital, um, helped us all kind of be on the same page. So whenever it's appropriate for baby to start feeding, our hospital, multiple hospitals across the country use the infant-driven feeding skills. Um, it's owned by Dr. Browns now. It was developed by Sue Ludwig and Kara Ann Waitsman. So what that does is it kind of, it sets scores for when it's appropriate to start feeding baby and baby's readiness and baby's feeding quality. A one, there's, there's one through five on each. And on readiness, one would be where baby's crying before you get to the bedside. Two would be baby starts crying when you do a diaper change or baby's waking up. Um, so one or two is when you would feed. And then the quality is one through five, and that gets pretty descriptive. So basically, you're going to be documenting if you have to pace the baby, give him post breaks, um, secondary to respiratory fatigue or just generalized fatigue. Our hospital, our baby has to cue, show hunger cues twice in 24 hours before um, offering the breast or the bottle. That's just how we work but because we want to make sure baby's actually ready to eat. And there's a lot of disagreements within our NICUs within our country in regards to respiratory support, respiratory support and feeding our fragile infants. Um, a lot of physicians say that you can feed a baby on CPAP. Um, this is due to research that came out um, done by a physician group saying that it's safe to feed these babies because um, they use utilize their methods on baby lambs. And they said that it's just basically the same thing to to feed an infant as it is to feed a baby lamb. And we know that's not right. Um, And then so Louisa Ferrara came out with some research. It wasn't that long ago. She's always working on something, and I think she's trying to release something pretty soon. But it's basically the effects of nasal continuous airway pressure on the pharyngeal swallow and neonates. She tested CPAP on babies. She would take the CPAP off. And a child's feeding as well, and while putting them on, I believe, 1 to 1.5 liters of nasal cannula. And basically, a, a huge amount of these babies were showing deep penetration or aspiration. And what's even more fascinating is that their swallow physiology was changed because of how the respiratory support effect, how, affected how they learned to swallow. Below CPAP is hyponasal cannula that can have a variety of ranges. It's pretty popular in our NICUs because it gets them basically on a nasal cannula rather than a mask or really thick prongs. The disadvantage of that is that you really don't know how much air is coming to these babies. The pressures are generated and they're unpredicted or unregulated. Um, So a lot of research says that anything over two liters can have a CPAP effect. I actually did a presentation to our physicians, our our medical director, when I first started about this. I think they they have difficulty understanding that because if a baby is more robust or a baby's older, they they think that having respiratory support at four liters or less won't really impact their swallow if they're more robust. Um, So my nephew, we feed on four liters. And... (laughs) 
it's it's frustrating, but I try to meet them in the middle and try to understand. So the first thing I'll do with these babies who are in isolates and then they start to show some hunger cues is I'll start just working on holding the baby and making sure that the baby doesn't have any oxygen, oxygen desaturations or apneas or bradycardias, and I'll see how they tolerate that. And then after working on handling and just holding, um, I'll work on handling while sucking on a pacifier, so non-nutritive suck. And after that, I'll work on handling with a pacifier and drops of breast milk. And I'll work on that for a few days and make sure they tolerate it. And then after that, um, and in terms of bottles, I'll typically start use, starting with the um, Dr. Brown's Ultra Premium Nipple because it's the slowest flow out there right now currently. So it's just managing that bolus size. I, I have like so many things that I want to say and add, but you were just going and going and going. So I was just letting you go. I I just have to say, I just, I love how knowledgeable and passionate you are about this stuff. And I just only wish that my son had somebody like you three years ago when we were going through this, because it was just, it was hell, literally hell, like you said. It's just, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but I think yeah, I, it, it's such a unique population because there's so much knowledge you have to know. And, and obviously, you know, knowing the CPAP, knowing the bolus sizes, knowing the nipple flows and things like that. But not only that, but you can't just present the evidence and what should be done to like a completely distraught mother without having some sort of compassion. So right. I love that you, you know, don't love that you've had that experience, but I, I, I love <laughs> that you, you understand that part of this job too, and that it's really, really heavily emotional. And it's, it's definitely not like seeing a, you know, healthy walking, talking adult. So, right. So typically for our parents, when I first meet them, I'll try to give them a day or two before introducing myself if they have a really fragile infant because I don't want to overstimulate them. But I'll let them know why I'm here and that I'm a neonatal therapist and I specialize in feeding and swallowing. Because a lot of times if I say I'm a speech pathologist, these parents get super um, confused. Like my baby doesn't talk, you know, we all hear that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, uh, actually your baby does talk. So when I get, when I hear that, I start going into, yeah, your baby does talk non-verbally to us all the time. Yeah. Um, and so I give them a handout over signs of stress and signs of comfort and ways to help facilitate comfort. Yeah. Um, and, and so I'll give them that handout and typically I'll leave a few copies at the bedside because they'll a lot of times they misplace it or lose it because they're just worried about pumping and, you know, surviving and sleeping and making sure their baby makes it through the night. We just, we had no support whatsoever with my son. It was just awful. It was like, he was completely healthy, just wouldn't eat. And it was like, why won't he eat? Well, we don't know why he won't eat. I'm like, well, what is the plan? Like, what's somebody going to do to make him eat? You know? And it was like, well, you know, he'll eventually figure it out. And I'm like, well, how long? You know, and it was like no one knew anything and no one was really doing anything to help. So, like, I literally just stayed up all night long, like, pumping, like, reading Catherine Shakir. Like, that was what I – he was he was there for 15 days, but that's what I did for 15 days straight was basically just not sleep and pump and read Catherine Shakir. So, Yeah, no, I'm so sorry you went through that, but – uh, it's hard. Yeah. I mean, I haven't, haven't been in your shoes, but I mean, I try to put myself in these parents' shoes as yeah. much as I can. 
because I know they're going through so much, you know, especially when these babies are younger, that these parents are terrified. I mean, just knowing that our job is to advocate for safe feeding experiences um, first. And so even with these term infants that come in, like if they're hypoglycemic or have, you know, sugar issues or for other complications, um, I always just try to say that the baby, you know, is not feeling so good. It's not, it's okay if we're not queuing to eat right now. Maybe we have to stabilize more primary systems first before the baby has enough energy to eat. I use that analogy a lot when the babies are hypoglycemic um, because I'll explain like, has your sugar ever been low? How do you feel? You don't feel good that you, you don't, you know, you don't have to feed this baby right now for not queuing. We can unfortunately put it down the NG tube. Um, that's, you know, not fun to say to these parents, but we don't want to force feed. So um, these, a lot of NICUs, and I do feel that throughout the country have gotten a lot better. They're very, but it's very volume driven, very driven by numbers. And I immediately talked to moms and dads that we don't focus on numbers. We focus on the quality of the feeding. So are, is your baby feeding well? Yes or no. If your your baby took two ML and fed well, I consider that a win. Um, Because if we, if the baby doesn't have the skills to eat and to swallow, the baby's not going to have the skills further, you know, further along the road. So something that's pretty illuminating is the research varies, but 12 to 17 weeks, and we all vary as humans, um, a baby starts to swallow in the womb. So say if the baby starts swallowing at 17 weeks, swallowing mom's um, amniotic fluid, and say term is is 40 weeks to position, say 37, but I'm going to say 40 weeks. Basically, the baby has, a full-term baby has 23 weeks of swallowing practice. And so whenever baby's born early, those weeks are, are missed in terms of the, that practice. And so, you know, feeding is the first developmental milestone the baby has to achieve. And if we're, the baby's born early, Breathing is typically always going to be an issue. So something that helped me really navigate this was understanding adults. And I related these babies a lot to patients with COPD and how typically their breathing and swallowing are mistimed. The same thing with preemies. And so if the baby needs to breathe over eating, breathing is always going to trap swallowing, basically. Um, and that's a much more primary system. And I try to explain to our parents that um, feeding is a cardiovascular activity. And especially for these preemies, like feeding is the hardest thing the baby's going to do all day. So it's exhausting for the baby. And I believe um, Jim Coyle said something about this one time where he explains, like, if you, you know, go on a run. 15 minute run and then take a sip of water. What's going to happen? Well, you're probably going to cough or you might not cough. You might just, you know, fill a tickle in your throat, but yet we are mature. We're mature adults. And so I explained to the parents, like your baby's not mature yet. Baby's trying to become mature, but that's how baby feels. So feeding is the baby's treadmill test. That's super interesting case. I'd never, I had never heard it put that way, but it makes, I mean, it makes so much sense in the world. I know. 
my entire experience with my son was all volume driven. You know, they're like, he can't leave here till he has 50 cc's. He can't leave here till he has 50 cc's. And it was just, I'm like, he's not tolerating this, you guys. Like, what, what the hell do we do? You know, and they're like, well, he's got to drink it. It's what he's got to drink, you know. And it was just, yeah, that makes so much sense. Just his poor little body could not run on that treadmill yet. Yeah, and that's okay. It's like, it's fine. I think it's like, I don't like, you know, you were saying give him time, but really that's what he needed. Yeah. Um, and force feeding a baby is not appropriate. But all, you know, the mouth is so sensitive. And in regards to respiratory support, especially they've had tape all over their face. That's so negative. I mean, um, there's a speech pathologist out there who told me that with her nurses, when she's educating them, I, I could never do this, but she will go ask RT for a CPAP machine and put the CPAP on them and say, would you like it some water? Everyone says no, because they know that they, you can't swallow on CPAP. But um, it's the same thing with the high flow nasal cannula. You don't know what respiratory support is creating a CPAP effect and, unless you have imaging. So this is my personal stance. Everyone's different, but I don't want to do um, modified barium swallow studies on a baby younger than 40 weeks. I just think it's not normal. Um, I don't want to give an, a fragile infant barium. I don't want to have to take them down to radiology. It terrifies parents. So obviously I'm a big advocate for these um, for a baby under 40 weeks, especially just because you can um, visualize the swallow while breastfeeding, you can do it at the bedside, mom and dad can be there, you can stay there for 30 minutes, you know, all that jazz. I did want to talk about oral care. And so something I've been trying to work on in our NICU is how we complete oral care. So a lot of times um, hospitals have those big green swabs with the mint flavoring. Or they just have the green or pink or green swabs with no mint flavoring. So obviously the mint flavoring is going to be very noxious. So X to those. Um, big swabs are not noxious as well. X to those. Um, so there's research out there about oral immune therapy. And that's where you get mom's breast milk. And you can either use a pacifier or... I think it's like 0.05 ml pulled up in a syringe and actually put the breast milk in the baby's cheek. Because the point is for baby to taste it and absorb it in his or her system to help her decrease the risk of infection. So, however, the nurses are really worried about, you know, these babies who are intubated, ventilator-associated pneumonia. So they are going to want to use a swab. So what I try to do is I say, let's use a swab this time. Next time, let's dip milk, breast milk on a pacifier and alternate. So it's minimizing that not just stimuli because essentially when you're getting the swab in the mouth, you are scraping off the fragile mucosa from the baby's cheek and oral cavity that that baby really needs. I, I did not know any of this. I did not know anything about oral care in babies. So... I, that was definitely something I never learned. I, I can't even remember when I started, like, when we started, like, brushing, not really, like, brushing my son's mouth out or whatever. I was like, are mm -hmm. we supposed to be doing this? Like, clearly, <laughs> this, like, <laughs> and we finally, yeah. like, took him to the dentist. And they're like, whatever you're doing is beautiful. His mouth is healthy as can be. I'm like, oh, thank God, because I have no freaking clue what I'm doing. So, 
Yeah. You breastfed and pumped for a long time though, right? I did. I exclusively pumped for an entire year. You win at life. I did win at life. <laughs> I was hooked up to that damn machine for hours and hours and yes, hours in, in the car between doing fees and yes. So I, I think oh I, gosh. what I have PTSD the most is the sound of that pump. Like I hear it now and I'm like, oh God, oh God, oh God. So you're like, no, no, no. Hey, but you're about to start pumping again, right? I don't want to talk about it. I need to get a coming back. I'm going to need to get one that makes a totally different noise than that one because I swear I have, yeah, I hear that. I'm like, no, no. Okay, got to get a different one. I wanted to talk about myself and one of my colleagues at a sister hospital made um, an oral feeding decision diagram. Oh, awesome. A lot of this was based on research from Wolf and Glass. But we modified it to the needs of our NICU and tried. And in an effort for me, it was really for my hospital, but our physicians, the physician group wanted me to collaborate with a sister hospital, the speech pathologist, and kind of collaborate on how to navigate this oral feeding decision making process. Um, So we made a graph and we scored the baby zero to two. We scored based on the infant's robustness and demeanor, their medical complexity, their respiratory support, their postmenstrual age, and then their hunger cues. And um, so if they scored a one to three, we would consider oral feeding. A four to five, that would be considered passy dips or taste. And then a six to 10, it would be like non-nutritive sucking or skin to skin on mom. So a lot of times what happens is I'm given about 10 to 12 days or one to two weeks to really work on just non-nutrient sucking on a pacifier or passy dips um, before the physicians are kind of like, we need a PO, we need a PO. So that gives me a little bit of a window to protect the baby as long as I can. Um, so a lot of physicians are under the impression that there's a critical window that the baby has to learn to eat, and that's based on research research from Gazelle in the 1960s. If I'm correct, he's a physician. So physicians like research by physicians. Um, But as we know, as neonatal therapists, there's no window for the baby to learn to eat. The baby will learn to eat when the baby feels feels healthy enough and robust enough to interact in such a cardiovascular activity. So all those primary systems have to be so yeah, I'm happy to share that if anyone wants it. Um, again, it's based on the research from Wolf and Glass, and we just modified it for the needs of my NICU. Awesome. I love that. Are you guys part of a big hospital system, or is there just a few of you? It's pretty big. I mean, my hospital's not big, but the sister hospital. So how it works, and it actually was difficult for me to understand, was that our neonatology group rotates to different hospitals throughout the DFW Metroplex within our system. And it could be, they could be on our, on where I am for a day and then somewhere, somewhere else. So it made it, makes it really hard for all of us to be on the same page because again, during rounds, it could be a different position every day. So that's when I get out this decision-making diagram and say, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. And something that, you know, physicians, they have their reasonings why they do things. I'm not a physician, but they want, they think that the baby needs to be on respiratory support to eat. And so what I try to do and advocate for is um, get the baby off respiratory support first before eating. 
because it's negative stimulation. Um, and it alters the swelling physiology with that flow coming in. And the babies are so fragile. They're so new and we're forming all those sulcine gyri in their brain. Um, so that's kind of how I operate. And it's it seemed to work, but it's still frustrating at times. So it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I think what, what was interesting about our experience was that we had one neonatologist that we just loved and she was so sweet and just she was almost more like a friend than a doctor, you know, like she just explained things in such like a, you know, we don't know what to expect. We don't know when this stuff's going to develop. And it was just like her compassion just was so comforting. And then we had other doctors that were like, well, what's going on? When's he going to start eating? What's the discharge plan? And I'm like, you're supposed to have the the answers to this stuff. I don't know. You know, it's frustrating. I mean, even our, the Neo that was on today, um, she was telling me that she she has to go to three hospitals today. Yeah. So, I mean, they have their pressures just like we do, yeah. but that's, I don't know, that's just rough for everyone yeah. involved. <laughs> yeah. So most hospitals feed on two liters or less. Um, some it's 1.5 liters or less. Again, and some are like the hospital system that I serve, we, we feed on four liters and I kind of explained already how I navigate that to protect the baby as much as I can. Because these physicians think that the baby needs practice. If they get, you know, to be 34 weeks, why aren't we bottle feeding? We need to start practicing. Well, really, we don't need to be practicing anything because the baby's not ready. It's okay if the baby's 37 weeks and the baby says, I can eat now. That's okay. But they have pressures to get the baby out, you know, yeah. by 40, yeah. 42 weeks. So the baby can't live there forever. And I get it. I totally get it. I don't want them to live there forever. But I think that was my fear. I think I just was like, what? Like, because it was just no one could tell, like, no one was interact. Like, no one was giving us a therapy plan. Like, there was nothing going on. And I was like, is my baby just going to live here forever? And they're like, well, no. And I'm like, well, then what are we doing? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like, I definitely had those fears that like. He was never coming home because there just was no, you know, nobody was trying to do anything. So, yeah, you're stuck. <laughs> yeah. So the three ways to get home is that baby has to gain weight, um, baby has to maintain temperature, and baby has to complete PO feeds. So how we work is is 24 to um, 48 hours of completing all feeds. That's physician dependent. And something else I wanted to talk about was is removal of the NG tube. A lot of times what happens is baby does pull it out, but... Or the impatient mom. Exactly. You're like, you're doing this. <laughs> I really advocate for keeping the NG tube in for actually two days of completing all feeds because what happens if it's removed too, too early, the parent gets this perception that baby's doing extremely well, baby's going home tomorrow, and then majority of the time we have to put the NG tube back and then the parent's just distraught. So I try to keep that or advocate to keep the NG tube in um, for yeah, two days, which is ideal, at least one day, because it gives baby enough time to say, okay, I really have this or not. Something that's really important to me is minimizing pain. And I can get into that later if that's appropriate. But um, that's my primary role is minimizing pain for these babies, promoting as normal development as possible and promoting a relationship with the parents. Yeah. I guess I didn't even really think of pain. Yeah. I really didn't even think of pain. Like how, how are the babies experiencing pain? Um, well, their NG tube goes through in their nose yeah. or the OG tube or there's yeah. tape all over their face. The heel stick is the most, um, Oh yeah. 
repeated yeah. yeah procedure um so as neonatal therapists and I, I feel like I'm really proud of what my me and my my colleague and I in the current um, NICU I serve is we're big proponents for two-person cares. Um, so especially for these babies who are in, in isolates, we go in with um, the bedside nurse. And I'm not sure if you're familiar, but there are touch times. Actually, you're familiar. You had a baby in the NICU, but there are touch times. Um, and so these babies aren't supposed to be touched outside of their touch times. Um, so say it's every three hours or sometimes it's every six or eight, depending on their um, complexity, but we'll go in with the bedside nurse and do the cares with the nurse. So maybe um, nurses doing diaper or nurses fixing an IV. We'll make sure baby's maintaining that flexion, which is where arms and legs are tucked, kind of where I was explaining mom or dad could give a hand hug. Hands are at midline and into the face as much as possible. If they're getting in the way of the nurse or pulling a tube, well, then I just put them on the chest and hold them down. And after I do that, then I'll offer a pacifier and get the baby sucking. Um, what's important about offering a pacifier is that you want to stroke the lips and let the baby says you can come in. You don't just force it in. Um, it's just not... It's not nutritive for the babies or it's not appropriate. So for in terms of the heel stick, you can offer breast milk on the pacifier because it's it's sweet and it distracts the baby. It offers the baby a taste to suck and get, get some breast milk on a pacifier during the heel stick procedure. If there's another painful procedure going on, a great idea would be to offer sucrose, which we call the brand we use, I think it's Sweeties, but it's a basically sugar water and you want to offer that two minutes before a painful procedure and and it's the act of actually sucking on the pacifier with the component of the sucrose that actually minimizes the pain um so you have to offer that two minutes before because basically it affects baby's brain and helps distract baby from pain so we're we in terms of explaining that to parents i just say this is what we do in support of your baby's comfort these are all comfort measures. I don't say the word pain. Yeah. I use the word comfort. So Yeah. I, I like that case. I know when you said pain, I was like, what kind of pain? But then, yeah, you're totally right. I, I was like horrified with that poor baby's NG tube. I was like, oh my God, that looks so uncomfortable and the tape everywhere. And yeah. So. Yeah. So in terms of feeding, I went through the progression that I typically do for more fragile infants, but you always want to feed baby swaddled. You'll hear a lot of babies falling asleep swaddled. No, um, that didn't work with me. <laughs> um, so baby needs to be swaddled because it mimics a womb. Baby was in that flex position for so long in mommy's tummy, especially our mom's tummy. I'm so used to saying mommy. Um, <laughs> their mom's stomach and in that flex position. So that's more natural. They're not used to the effects of gravity outside the womb. I mean, they were floating around, you know, kicking, but they always had a boundary to kick against and they came back into flexion. Now, if the baby's out and we're born early, I mean, they're in extended position. They haven't had enough time to be in flexion, to be in that ball. Um, so the swaddle mimics that and helps support all the muscles that the baby needs to utilize to eat. Um, and so you want to feed in an elevated sideline position. So always tell moms and dads, make sure that ears are to the ceiling, head is higher than the hips, 
Um, and typically what happens is when you first start to feed with the bottle, baby might have a super vigorous suck, but baby doesn't remember to breathe. Um, that's going to probably happen every time. So we, in our NICU, we try to let mom or dad feed first. Catherine Shaker, Shakir, she, she actually says that we should feed first. But in terms of family-centered care, you don't want to take that memory away from mom and dad. So I try to navigate that and see the best of both worlds um, and just be there holding mom or dad's hand with the bottle and saying, oh, do you see that? We need a pace and this is what pacing looks like. Now, in terms of pacing, a lot of times people can, you just tilt the nipple down to the side where there's no milk in the nipple and give baby a break. Some people actually remove the nipple, put the nipple back on baby's lips and wait for baby to accept the nipple again into the mouth. So a lot of times I'm pacing until the baby goes home and the moms and dads still have to pace when they go home. And, you know, that's okay. It, it doesn't matter what you're having to do to support the baby to eat. It matters how well they're eating and they're eating safely and that they're gaining weight. So in terms of nipple selection, um, actually, when I first started in the NICU that I'm in right now, everyone was on the fastest slow nipple. It seemed like that was my perception. And no one's on that nipple. And like, we don't even touch those anymore. A lot of Nikki's across the country use Similac or Infamil. And those are obviously formula brands, companies, and they supply um, nipples. And they're disposable. You use them, then you throw them away. Um, And so those are the quote-unquote slow-flow nipples. But the problem is with those, you don't know how quick the milk's dripping out of the nipple. So you don't know the flow rate. They're great if baby's not having any super, super big difficulties with eating. But if they are, then I'll use, we have Dr. Brown's on par in our hospital. I'll start with the ultra preemie because to me, that's that's the next step in terms of passy dips. Then I'll go to preemie. Um, And a lot, a lot of times babies discharge on the preemie or they, I actually had a baby last week discharge on the ultra preemie nipple. And again, it's fine. The point is that baby's learning to swallow safely and the bolus size doesn't matter. Now, a lot of staff like the faster flow because it gets it in the baby. It gets yeah. it over with. Yeah. And that's not safe. Um, especially if the half of the rag is wet with milk. That means that baby actually didn't eat those last 10 ml. 10 ml, they're on the, it's on the rag. If you see a lot of loss to the front of the baby's mouth, that's actually the anterior loss of the bolus. So what baby's saying is, I can't swallow this. It's too fast for me. It's not just like a cute thing the baby's doing. So that basically we need to pace or offer in post breaks. And much of my feeding with the babies, I go back to the pacifier and get their sucking going and get that oral coordination going. Um, and then see if they'll accept the bottle. Um, in terms of offering a break, I'll give a fake burp and maybe they don't really need a burp, but I'll give them a fake burp or I'll put them back in the bed, give them a period to kick around, which called like unrestricted movement. I'll always swaddle them back and see if they're ready to eat. So it's kind of like a redirection, but I try, you know, steer away from those volume driven strategies, but do whatever I can to help facilitate organization. I feel like this is like a, everything that I could have possibly done wrong. It went wrong for me. So it's okay. You did a great job. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, I, you know, everyone knows I'm all about when you know better, you do better. So thank you for telling me. So true. Yeah. So if you're force feeding babies in your NICU, you should probably stop right now. So 
I mean, and you know this as therapists, as speech pathologists, we are, we feel really alone. Um, yeah. I'm the only one in the NICU. So like I wear green scrubs, the nurses wear blue scrubs. So it's pretty isolating. When I first started, I had a, I had a really, really hard time. Um, and something that they talked about in the Ignite Mentorship was kind of knowing who your fan club is. Yeah. And my fan club was so, so small. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was like <laughs> two people and people I needed on my fan club was like so long. Yeah. Um, but to those few, you know, few nurses who nurtured me in the beginning, I'll never forget that. And that is so, you know, it's so important, especially for anybody when you start somewhere new, be nice to that new person and just welcome them in because they're just trying to, you know, have a job. <laughs> Um, and not that the nurses were bad to me, but I think it's just understanding our, our where we're thinking. So what I explain to parents is this is your nurse so-and-so. She specializes in the medical side. I'm Casey. I'm your neonatal therapist, speech pathologist, and I specialize in the developmental side. And what's great about it is nurse so-and-so and myself, we get to mesh our ideas together and meet in the middle and give the best care to your baby. But a lot, I mean, you have to know much of the medical inter- interventions before knowing any of the developmental care interventions. Yeah. So, I mean, it takes a lot of studying to do that, but you have to know where the nurse is coming from and then they have to know where we're coming from. So that's a continuous journey, just kind of figuring that out. I had a wonderful experience with the nurses. The nurses were wonderful. It's just, there was no therapy. So it was like, how are we going to make this baby swallow? You know, and they didn't know any better other than that just he had to consume, you know, 50 cc's of a meal before he could go home, you know? Yeah. You know, I I want to correct myself. (laughs) Our nurses are great and I'm really proud of the relationships that I formed. And, you know, I think my boss asked, my boss did ask me a few months ago, you know, how's that fan club going? And I, I don't have anyone that I need to bring over to my team anymore, which I'm really proud about. Um, and I'm thankful that they, you know, let me in and they've been willing to listen to my point of view. No, it just provides the best care for the baby and you know, perception's reality. So if the bedside parent kind of sees some conflict with the nurse or the nurse and the doctor or the therapist and the doctor, the therapist and the nurse, whatever, that's not good. I mean, initially I started with, you know, just like talking to them one-on-one and then I asked the so something that I really encourage anyone who's trying to get in the NICU or they're already in the NICU and they just started is be you know get really good friends with the nurse manager because yes I have my boss is the director of rehab but really I see the director of nurse or um, the nurse manager every day more than my boss (laughs) so you need to forge a great relationship with the nurse manager and um whoever like coordinates the training for the nursing because that's how we have we have two kind of leaders in our NICU that are nurses and then also the charge nurses you're going to want to kind of get to get to know them but so I was just educating them at the bedside and just kind of getting to know them as a person rather than just talking about therapy Um, like just getting to know them as a person and then I, you know, talked to the nurse management and could I be a part of your skills day? Because we have skills day once a year. So I had a, it's like 
every night for a week. So I had a poster and I, the first time I went over feeding. And then this past year, I um, went over pain management. And a lot of that is from Mary Coughlin, trauma-informed care. So I had her book sitting out. I'm like, this is an NMP, neonatal nurse practitioner. This is, she says this stuff. It's not just me. <laughs> um, and then something that is really working for me is educating the RN interns. So we have interns and then they come on full time. So I get to solidify their mindset from the beginning. There's no changing that has to be done. And that literally is the best thing because they get to see us working together. And the last thing I did was I just took a student and that I, that was incredible because I got to talk about speech pathology and immunotherapy not to them directly. So they got to listen, um, but it wasn't like I was attacking anybody. It was like, and they were so awesome with teaching my student and being open to teaching her about nursing. And so I got to learn as well. That worked for me. Oh, awesome. I love that so much. Do you want to talk about anything else, Case? Just know something I did want to mention is that all these neonatal reflexes um, start to integrate around three to four months. So around that time is when baby can say, I'm going to eat or not. Yeah. The swallow becomes volitional, some say four to six months, you know, whatever you go off of or whatever baby's demonstrating. The baby can say, you know, I'm going to eat that or I'm not going to eat that. So those foundational experiences, obviously, we know as therapists, they matter. And so I try to use that when I educate nurses because they don't see them after that. They don't see them that old. Yeah, so our job is to protect oral experiences and encourage relationship with the parents and protect sleep. That's a big one, but I can talk about that later. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Case. This was so helpful. Yeah, I hope it was helpful. I hope everyone learned so much. There's so much to learn. And I think I think I just wanted to say that, you know, obviously thank you for everything you do, but you know, here's to us. We're challenging the status quo and we're not satisfied with how things are and we are brave enough to change things. And that takes a lot of courage. And I, I remind myself that every day because I get frustrated. Um, but it's important not to give up because we will change our field. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.